Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to First Move this Thursday. Plenty coming up this hour, including the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, is expected to speak any moment now at the G20 in New Delhi. Earlier this morning, the Secretary of State had a short meeting with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, on the sidelines of that summit. This, of course, was their first face-to-face conversation since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began just over a year ago. CNN's national security reporter Natasha Bertrand has been following the events. Natasha, clearly much for all of the G20 foreign ministers to discuss, but I think the war in Ukraine has sucked oxygen from the room. The key question, what do we know about what those two men discussed in that, what, 10 minutes of conversation that they had? Yeah, so this was described really as kind of a spur of the moment interaction. Mm. It was described by the Russians as happening really from when they were walking from one event to the next. But Secretary of State Antony Blinken did seek out uh, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov, the State Department says, and that's because he wanted to have a conversation with him about a number of things, chief among them, the detention of the American citizen Paul Whelan in Russia. He has been detained for uh, a number of years now and, and has not seen any signs that he is going to be released. So that was really the the chief topic of discussion that Blinken wanted to discuss with Lavrov, as well as the New START Treaty, which is that nuclear arms control agreement that Russia said that it would be pulling out of. The the Secretary of State really wanted to speak with Lavrov, however, briefly about uh, Russia still needing to comply, of course, with with that treaty and wanting them to to be able to stay in communication over that. And of course, the topic of Ukraine uh, was also discussed. But look, I think that the bigger picture here is that Blinken clearly wants to keep the lines of communication open open with the Russians. They do not want it to become a situation where the U.S.-Russia communication channels are closed, no matter how bad the relationship gets. So it was not a pre-planned meeting, we're told, but Secretary of State Blinken did take advantage of that moment to pull him aside again for the first time face-to-face since the war began and speak to him bluntly about the top issues that the United States feels are really important right now, Julia. Yeah, and a number of issues there, as you quite rightly point out. And once again, we're showing that room now as uh, people just wait for that press conference with the U.S. Secretary of State. Clearly, those 10 minutes are going to be vitally important. But there are broader subjects, of course. These men have had their own interactions with Chinese officials as well, Natasha. Any sense of whether that country's potential involvement in a peace solution or beyond, of course, the concerns about the supply of weapons, perhaps from China to to Russia, also a very sensitive subject between these two men. Any sense of, of whether China was mentioned in this discussion? We're not getting any sense of that this morning. Mm. However, this has been a very, very concerning issue for the U.S. Of course, they are watching very closely to see whether China is going to provide weapons to Russia for use in the war in Ukraine. China to date, really, Chinese companies have only been providing non-lethal equipment. Now we are learning that the U.S. believes that they are preparing to provide them with lethal equipment. And so I think that as part of the conversations writ large between the U.S. and Russia, there are probably going to be conversations about 
about warning the Russians against taking that Chinese equipment, right? And and same with the Chinese leadership. You know, Antony Blinken does not necessarily have any plans to speak directly with the Chinese foreign minister while he is uh, there, but he also did not uh, leave leave that possibility off the table. Um, Blinken, of course, has been very bluntly speaking to the Chinese about the uh, risks of the Chinese providing that kind of support to the Russians, uh, threatening essentially that the U.S. is going to take uh, action if they do that, perhaps in the form of of sanctions. And so this is going to be a a very interesting uh, meeting, really, the G20 meeting, uh, when you have all of these kind of uh, people around the same table with, with this huge, obviously, conflict looming over them, which is the war in Ukraine. Yeah, of course. And I looked at the agenda for for the Indian um, authorities as well. Food security, humanitarian assistance, development cooperation. The unfortunate thing is this war is certainly sucking oxygen from the room and and not even allowing a statement to be made at at the conclusion of this. Natasha, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Natasha Bertrand, thank you for joining us from the Pentagon. And the moment that the US Secretary of State begins to speak, we will take you to it for that press conference. For now, let's move on to the battle for Bakhmut. Russian forces are making gains, according to the Ukrainian military, and fears are growing now in the town of Chajivyar, which could be Russia's next target if Bakhmut falls. From there, Alex Marcotte reports. This is the road on the way to Bakhmut. Cars, military vehicles bombing up and down this road, going to and from the front. You see this armored vehicle right here. the V sign for victory. There are still some people here, not too many, but some of these hardy residents uh, have stayed behind. This is the shop of Sivyush, who is here grilling meat. It's called Shashlik. He actually fled from Bakhmut uh, two months ago and has opened up the shop selling basics like bananas, beetroot, and, and candles. There's another man here who we just met whose daughter is still in Bakhmut, one of the thousands of people there uh, who have been asked to evacuate but are still in the city amid this incredible fighting. You can see that they put up wood there uh, to, to protect those windows. So much destruction uh, in this town. We were just farther in the center of town. It's called Chazivyar. This is one town over uh, from Bakhmut with a large group of people at a bus stop waiting for a water delivery that never came. Every few moments, you can hear explosions, the sound of what we believe to be outgoing artillery fire, Ukrainians firing at at Russian positions. We spoke with an older woman named Valentina, who said that there is so much flying over their heads that she is scared all the time, that they are so close to the Russian positions. That's more outgoing artillery fire. They're so close to the Russian positions that they can walk there. We also spoke with some Ukrainian soldiers like these ones who man one of those artillery positions. They told us that there has been no order to pull back from Bakhmut, that they're fighting because if they give up Bakhmut, then this town, Chazivyar, this would be next. And that is what everyone is thinking now, that if Russia were to take Bakhmut, that they would have another foothold in this region from which to try to push farther into eastern Ukraine. Alex Markward, CNN, in Chazivyar. In the meantime, Russia claiming a small Ukrainian military unit launched a raid inside Russia near its southern border. 
The Ukrainian government denies any involvement, saying it's either Russian provocation or the work of Russians opposed to their own government. Fred Plankin joins us now from Moscow. Fred, what more information do we have about what happened here? Hmm. Yeah, the Russians are certainly treating this as a pretty serious situation. In fact, uh, the Kremlin is saying that Vladimir Putin was being briefed by several of his intelligence and security services about what was going on there. Essentially, the FSB, the Russian Federal Intelligence Service, was saying that this group of people crossed the border, apparently took hostages, uh, six, six uh, hostages in various places across the border, and even went into an administrative building there as well. Now, later, there was a video, Julia, that emerged of uh, two alleged fighters in front of what appears to be a Russian administrative building claiming that they were part of the Russian Volunteer Corps. Now, that is a group of Russians who are fighting in Ukraine on the side of the Ukrainians. We can see that video that was put out there. Those people were essentially saying that they want to show the Russians that they're active and uh, and just want to show that they are over there on the other side and able to operate on the Russian side of the border. Right now, the information that we're getting from the Russians is that apparently things have calmed down there. Apparently teams are still searching around and that those militants, as the Russians put it, are not there anymore. Needless to say, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, extremely angry about this situation. He was supposed to go on a trip earlier today to the south of Russia to meet teachers there. He canceled that trip. He did that trip online and he called the people behind this neo-Nazis, as he put it. Let's listen into what uh, Vladimir Putin had to say. They're protecting people from neo-Nazis and terrorists, from those who tortured and killed people in the Donbas for eight years, those who killed Daria Dugina in Moscow, those who today committed another terrorist act, another crime. They infiltrated the border territory and opened fire on civilians. They saw it was a civilian car, they saw there were civilians and children sitting there, an ordinary Neva, and opened fire on them. So when Vladimir Putin is talking about a Neva there and opening fire on civilians, the Russians are saying that one civilian was killed while driving a Lada Neva. That's a small uh, SUV, obviously made uh, by Lada. said one person was killed, also that a young boy apparently was wounded as well. Apparently those, life, uh, those injuries are not life-threatening, uh, as the Russians put it. But as, as you said, Julia, the Ukrainians, for their part, are saying they have nothing to do with this. They claim that this is either a false flag operation or that these are Russian separatists who are not part of the Ukrainian armed forces, Julia. Fred Plankin there. Thank you so much for that report. And to Greece now, where rail workers are on a 24-hour strike protesting what they call inadequate safety measures after a train crash that killed at least 46 people. Rescue crews continue their desperate search for signs of life amid the wreckage. The Greek Prime Minister says human error was to blame for the disaster. And Nada Bashir joins us now. Nada, um, important point there. Has everyone been accounted for that we believe was on that train and and what's the status of people that survived and are injured what more information do we have well look julia we were at the scene of the collision earlier this morning we were speaking to some of the rescue workers who are still there they've still been working across the night and through today but of course this is not a rescue effort anymore this is a recovery effort they are still retrieving bodies from the wreckage and unfortunately for some of those victims on board, it is a matter of identifying DNA. At this point, the first two carriages of this train were completely engulfed by flames upon that collision. The third carriage completely turned on its side. It is not expected that anyone on board these three carriages 
managed to survive that collision. collision. And there are, of course, dozens of people still in hospital who were injured receiving treatment. We're outside Lattice, a general hospital, which has taken in many of those injured in the collision. A lot of them, of course, young people, according to local hospital officials. And there is still an effort to recover those on board. And that is ongoing as we speak. There's also, of course, efforts to sort through the wreckage. I mean, this is a huge disaster zone in Siba. So it's clearly a huge challenge for the authorities here. But of course, that investigation into the accountability here is also still ongoing. At this stage, one man has been arrested, the manager of a nearby station. He has been charged now uh, with manslaughter, with causing death, mass death by negligence, as well as grievous bodily harm by negligence. He is reported to have admitted to making mistakes according to state media and will appear before prosecutors soon. But of course, there is also the question of the safety standards and measures here in Greece, where the country has a far weaker uh, rail standard than its European counterparts. And there has been growing frustration, growing anger uh, towards the government and towards the transport ministry over this latest collision. In fact, just yesterday, the transport minister announced his own resignation. He said that this was a mark of respect to those who had lost their lives. But he also said that the standards here, the safety measures in place, were simply not up to the standard one would expect in the 21st century. And we have seen anger building here in Greece. We've seen protests taking place across Athens. As you mentioned there, a strike has been announced for 24 hours by railway workers. And there is real questions as to whether the government has really done enough over the last few years to ensure that the safety measures are up to standard here in Greece. And of course, as that investigation continues, we are still learning more. At this stage, it is very much focused, according to the authorities, on the question of human error. The Prime Minister himself describing this as being most likely caused by a tragic human mistake. But of course, those questions will continue to mount over the safety standards within the rail network and whether or not there is more to blame here. Julia? the family and the entire country, I think, demanding answers here. Nada Bashir, thank you for joining us there from Greece. Okay, coming up, as we've been mentioning throughout the show already this morning, we are waiting for that press conference from New Delhi. The U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, expected to speak following that 10-minute conversation with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov. What will he have to say about that meeting? We will bring you that press conference the moment it comes. And also coming up, the resilience of a young family. We'll hear from the founders of a startup who left Russia at the onset of war. We catch up with them one year on. Stay with us. Atomic Energy Agency is again raising concerns about the safety of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Saturday will mark one year since Russian forces seized control of the Ukrainian nuclear site. And the head of the IAEA says the plant faces persistent security risks during the war. He cited nearby fighting and explosions, delays in staff rotations and a growing security presence on site. CNN's Claire Sebastian reports that experts are worried Russia's tight grip on the nuclear plant could lead to disaster. A year into its occupation of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, Russia is making changes. Satellite images showing the dry storage area where spent nuclear fuel is kept after being cooled, first in August last year, then at the end of February, what looks like a wall or structure has appeared. 
Russia's atomic energy company Rosatom tells state media it's building a shield to protect against Ukrainian artillery strikes. A local Russian-backed official posted this in December, calling it a protective dome. It's all illegal. Doing anything without license was a hook and pack, nuclear radiation safety. The head of Ukraine's atomic energy company, Energa Atom, says it's all part of a deteriorating situation at Zaporizhia that he is powerless to stop. What is the biggest risk right now when it comes to safety in the plant? Uh, yeah, biggest risk is that we do not know what is in their hands at the moment. and You can expect they can do anything. So they can continue shelling on the plant, for example. Energa Atom says Russia, which forcibly took over the plant last March, damaging several buildings in the process, continues to use it as a de facto military base. Video surfaced last summer of military trucks in one of the turbine buildings next to a reactor. Last month, Energa Atom accused Russia of bringing hundreds of newly mobilized troops to the site before deploying them to the east. Rosatom's own press service for the power plant denied there's any heavy military equipment on the site, but noted that Russia's National Guard troops, Putin's domestic security force, are guarding the plant. I'm very worried about Saporizhia. I'm very worried. Energa Atom says the plant has been cut off from the electricity grid five times in total, leaving diesel generators the last line of defence before a catastrophe. Fighting has also come too close. The IAEA reports shelling hit a building housing fresh nuclear fuel in September and a reactor building in November. Energa Atom now estimates 4,500 Ukrainian staff are left at the plant out of 11,000 before the war. That reduction of the number of people is going to have a significant impact on their ability to maintain and function sort of systems whether or not that's security systems, safety systems, radiation monitoring. Nuclear expert Nick Tomkinson says he is working with the Ukrainian government to try to deploy radiation mapping systems at Zaporizhia and other nuclear sites. One of the concerns could be that things could go missing um, from Zaporizhia, particularly some of the fuel. Uh, I'm not worried about mistake. What I'd be worried about was is an active decision to do something. Ukraine's nuclear power company, though, is worried about a slow-motion mistake. Poor maintenance leading to the degradation of the equipment on the site, including the reactors themselves, currently all in various states of shutdown. It is going to the stage uh, nobody knows to, uh, if we uh, will be able to, to, to operate it again. And this is just a matter of time. The Russian side says strict radiation safety standards are being observed. Hardly a consolation when 20% of Ukraine's electricity supply remains hostage to this war. Claire Sebastian, CNN, London. To set the stage for our next conversation, I just want you to watch this from a year ago. Well, that was that was a, a very emotional decision, you know, um, at certain point, we felt like the bo- we already hit the bottom, but you know each new day brought us something new in terms of bottoms, and um, we just thought that we can't you know run the business in in a calm and safe place. So we decided to uh, run it from somewhere else. 
That was entrepreneurs, Nikita and Valentina Blank, talking to us last year about their decision to leave their home and family in Moscow as the Russian invasion of Ukraine began. They're the founders of a startup called Hey Everyone, offering companies a way to automate investor communications. The young family had family members in both Russia and Ukraine when we spoke to them 11 months ago. And I'm pleased to say Nikita and Valentina join us again from their new home in Georgia. Guys, it's great to have you back on the show and a huge privilege to be able to have this conversation. Um, and I can say the smiles, I think, say everything. It's a challenging time, but um, welcome to the show. Nikita, let me start with you. Um, do you feel a greater sense of stability? How are you doing one year on? Hey, Julia, it's so great to be here once again. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, um, I don't know about stability. It mm. definitely feels a bit stable. We are able to kind of... Uh, see through more than 10 minutes ahead of us. And that is amazing. That's probably why that's that's why we're smiling. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> M- managing expectations there. Um, Valentina, come in here too, because I think the thing that I remembered most about our conversation was the fact that you have family in, in Russia, you had family in Ukraine. There were sort of terrible, heartbreaking decisions having to be made on all sides, and particularly taking your daughter away from her family too. How are you doing? How is she doing? Uh, yeah, uh, part of my family in Ukraine, they just went to Germany. And uh, uh, as uh, as for us, uh, as for our daughter, it was complicated to settle down in new places. And uh, just to have conversation with your daughter, uh, where are we, what we are doing, and uh, so on. And we just uh, moved on and tried to uh, to have a kindergarten for for daughter and just to 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 get used to this environment. Yeah, but she's a smart girl. She kind of you know <laughs> understands everything, and she's so amazing. I mean, she's been so supportive as well. Even as that, I mean, I'm looking at that picture. She's just absolutely adorable. Um, you mean her resilience is surprising you? Well, it's well, she's a part of us, so it's kind of yeah. it's kind of what we were anticipating, but we are pleasantly surprised as, you, as, as if you want. Nikita, what what about your family that that's still in in Moscow? Do you have conversations yeah. about about what's going on and you know, you said to me a, a year ago, look, we we want to build this business and we were in Moscow because there was a, a vibrant startup community and you had family to provide support to you and you just didn't feel like you had a future there as entrepreneurs, never mind anything else. Um talk to me about about those conversations and and, and whether you even talk about the ongoing war situation. Right. So, you know, uh, I like to think that it's very important to have your close ones and your family on your side and have that feeling that they have your back every second of like every at every point in time. So um, we try not to talk about these things in order to, you know, to not disrupt our own relationship. So this time, like Specifically at this time, it's very important to be uh, to have that support. So we try to just, you know, keep, you know, simple human relationships. And that's the most important thing. That's what we focus on. So, yeah, hope that answers your question. And uh, regarding Moscow and, um, you know, our ourselves building the startup out there, um, it wouldn't make sense anyway, because um, our client base is mostly in the U.S., 
so kind of our mindset is already in the U.S. and we're kind of in the process of relocating uh, to the U.S. Yeah, I, I heard a not not so well kept secret that you've applied for an A1 visa, which is extraordinary person yeah. um, visa. Um, we haven't applied. We're, we're in the process. You're in the process. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the paperwork's about this thick, um, allegedly. Yeah. Um, talk to me about that then. Any sense of timing? Assume once that comes through, fingers crossed it comes through, you'll look to, to move to the United States because it has been a year and you've made incredible progress with, with the company too, despite tough the tough situation. Um, right. So um, regarding the timing, you know, asking a Russian person about the timing. Is, you I know. know. We're back you, to that 10-minute window. I know. Right. <laughs> uh, so hopefully it happens this year. And I believe that we'll definitely relocate uh, this year. I personally uh, traveled to New York back in December. It was amazing. I spent, um, I think, more than a month out there. Um, and, um, I'm just, you know, preparing, uh, our company, ourselves, our family, our co-founders, uh, Nick and Raf, uh, to relocate with us as well. I can see how excited you are. You're bouncing around. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's sort of irresistible. I think your, your energy and, and your optimism, which is very admirable too. Um, do you worry about having a Russian passport? Do you worry for other Russians having a Russian passport if you simply want to build your business, take care of your family? Is it a concern? Is it something that you should be worried about? I mean, you just either you accept the rules of the game or you don't. Um, so having a Russian passport uh, doesn't mean that you're banned or canceled. Uh, it just means that you have more things to do <laughs> Yeah. in order uh, to I get to your goals. Yeah, I, but I think it's an important point to make about perhaps destigmatizing that, certainly. Because, yeah. you know, I speak to friends who, who are fearful of that, I think, of what the reception will be. Um, Valentina, I know you're, you're focusing on taking care of your family, uh, of building a business. Do you ever think about when the war will end and, and whether you eventually go back? Or is the next 10 minutes, as um, Nikita pointed out, just focused on the United States um, yeah. and what the immediate future brings? Uh, every time uh, we have uh, talks about this and uh, it's uh, difficult to imagine last year we just thought that it might be a very short period it might be uh, might be in, in a better way and we will change something but now we we see uh, that we can uh, we can make our best just to move forward uh, to and focus on our company i think i think um, you know, i saw a quote from you yeah. Yeah. I, I saw a quote from you, Valentina, sorry to interrupt there, where you said calm is the new currency, where <laughs> sort of whatever life throws at you, you, you just have to manage it. I think that's the message. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, because uh, yeah, yeah, that's why uh, I have to uh, manage um, our company and uh, to deal with people, and uh, they uh, they need to, to to trust you and to rely on, and uh, I I should share their this calmness to um, be, to them. Yeah, there'll be lots she of parents wondering whether you. I know. I was about to say there'll be lots of parents here around watching, wondering whether you have the calmest four-year-old on the planet as well. Watch this space, guys. Probably, I'm, I'm, probably that's true. I'm happy for you. Come back and talk to us when, um, when Hey Everyone's really launched and you can talk to us about the growth of the business. It's very exciting.
Nikita and Valentina. That sounds exciting. We're launching as we speak. So we have a special promo code for you guys. You just type Hey CNN while doing the checkout. (laughs) Okay, awesome. Guys, we'll speak soon. Stay well. Thank you. Talk soon. Cheers. Bye. Nikita and Valentina Blank, founders of Hey Everyone there. Okay, still to come. The U.S. approves new arms sales to Taiwan. China's response next. Welcome back to First Move. The Biden administration has approved the sale to Taiwan of $600 million worth of missiles for its F-16 fighter jets. It's a move that will likely raise tensions between the United States and China even further. The State Department says it is consistent with U.S. policy to help Taiwan defend itself amid concerns about a possible attack from China. Beijing, in the meantime, saying it firmly opposes the move and will take forceful measures to protect its sovereignty. Mark Stewart joins us now from Tokyo. Mark, good to have you with us. The timing feels uh, consequential, let's call it that, whether deliberate or otherwise. Chinese foreign ministry's uh, view on this, though, made abundantly clear, and they're taking a dim view. And Julia, as someone who has spent time in this region, you can understand why the Chinese response is one of condemnation. It's of disapproval. The context being China views Taiwan as its sovereign territory, yet has not controlled it. Adding to the situation is the fact that the U.S. recognizes Taiwan, supports Taiwan, especially its ability to defend itself. So this potential weapons purchase, this potential military purchase, certainly can exacerbate the situation. I want you to take a listen to a Ministry of Foreign Affairs briefing from earlier today. Take a listen to the spokesperson. The sale of arms by the United States to China's Taiwan region seriously violates the One China principle and the three Sino-U.S. joint communiques, damages China's sovereignty and security interests, as well as Sino-U.S. relations and peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. China has always firmly opposed this. So that is the response from China, from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Yet we hear from Taiwan tonight expressing gratitude for the U.S. arrangement of this potential sale. So we have this new sticking point in U.S.-China relations that's in addition to the controversy surrounding the shootdown of the balloon and, of course, this current discussion, these current concerns from the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, that China may be helping Russia equip itself with lethal weapons as we see the drama in Ukraine. We just lost Mark Stewart there, but as he was saying, the backdrop for this decision from the United States uh, clearly complicated by the broader war in Ukraine, the concerns from the U.S. um, State Department that perhaps China is considering providing weapons to Russia. So, um, yes, 
And of course, we continue to wait for the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, to give that press conference off the back of that 10 minute meeting with his counterpart in Russia. In the meantime, let me give you a quick check of what we're seeing across US stock markets. Wall Street mostly lower as investors eye rising bond yields, interest rate sensitive tech stocks, the big loser. And in earning news, shares of retailer Macy's are higher after posting better than expected results. Dow component and software giant Salesforce is an early session winner too after reporting strong profits and positive forward guidance. And in other tech news, Elon Musk rolling out his Tesla master plan, but still no sign of a more affordable sedan. And that has disappointed many a Tesla superfan. Tesla shares giving back some of the strong gains they've racked up since the start of the year in early trade. As you can see, down some 7.5%. Musk's Tesla Investment Day, shareholder day, was short on specifics. But he is confirming that a new Tesla factory will be built in Mexico. Paula Monica joins me now. There was a lot out of this actually going global the monster size of investment required to fulfill their growth plans in order to um, provide the kind of vehicles that they're hoping for. But in the end, I think what investors wanted was, um, when are we going to get cheaper Teslas? Yeah, you are exactly right, Julia. The uh, the proverbial devil is always in the details. And I think a lot of investors and Wall Street analysts were left scratching their heads, wondering when will Elon Musk and other Tesla executives give us more details, more specifics about when a quote unquote cheaper Tesla might be on the market. And, you know, to be fair, the stock is tumbling today. But as you noted as well, shares were up more than 60 percent this year. It's the best stock or was at least up until today, the best stock this year in the S&P 500. So Elon Musk has a lot to be happy about with how Wall Street has rewarded Tesla this year. But I think to keep that momentum going, investors wanted more specifics. They didn't get them. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Tesla share price still half, really, of, of what it was at the highs, too. So this year has been good. The, the broader context here is um, slightly more painful if you have lofty ambitions. You know, to go back to that point about achieving that long-term target of what I believe is an output of 20 million vehicles annually by 2030, um, and that's a tenfold increase based on, on current capacity. The CFO of Tesla talked about a price tag of $175 billion. Wowzers. Yeah, Tesla obviously is going to need to spend a lot to meet its very lofty ambitions. And whether or not that potentially means more stock sales down the road, uh, you know, does the company have enough cash on hand and revenue coming in to fund all of this without potentially diluting investors further? Those are all questions that remains to be seen. And of course, the other big wild card for Tesla now is that every other auto company on the planet has woken up and found religion, if you will, in electric vehicles. So this is no longer a case where Elon Musk and Tesla have this market all to themselves. They are going to have to continue to fend with the likes of GM and Ford and Toyota and Volkswagen. And it's going to be a much bigger challenge, I think, for Tesla going forward. And that's why investors want specifics, not just platitudes. Yeah major non-combustion competition ultimately um, is on his way. Anything else that you pulled out of this? Because to the point about expansion of simply where they can produce as well, and now Mexico. Oh, no, I'm being, I'm being told to be quiet because actually the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, is walking to the podium 
Let's listen in. Uh, good evening, everyone. And apologies for doing this uh, so late. Hope I'm not disrupting people's dinner plans. Uh, we just finished um, a marathon day at the G20. We came together to focus on solving some of the most consequential problems affecting people of our nations and the world. Uh, and let me begin by thanking our host, India, for setting out an ambitious agenda for this meeting and for its presidency of the G20. Uh, we met here in Delhi roughly one year after President Putin launched his war of aggression on Ukraine, and one week after 141 countries voted in the United Nations General Assembly for a resolution that expressed support for a comprehensive, just, and lasting peace in accordance with the United Nations Charter and its principles of sovereignty and territorial integrity, and deplores the human rights and humanitarian consequences of Russia's aggression. Not a single G20 member voted with Russia to oppose that resolution. The chair's statement by India today reaffirmed the declaration issued by the G20 leaders last year in Bali, which, and I quote, strongly condemned the war in Ukraine and stressed it is causing immense human suffering and exacerbating existing fragilities in the global economy, end quote. Russia and China were the only two countries that made clear that they would not sign on to that text. Eighteen members of the G20 also reaffirmed that it is, and I quote, essential to uphold international law in the multilateral system. This includes defending all the purposes and principles enshrined in the Charter of the United Nations and adhering to international humanitarian law, end quote. Every G20 member, and virtually every country, period, continues to bear the costs of Russia's war of aggression, a war that President Putin could end tomorrow if he chose to do so. The United States didn't want this war. We worked hard to prevent it. Like most countries, we want to focus on the fundamental challenges affecting the daily lives of our people. So even as we stand with Ukraine while it defends itself, as any nation would do in that position, we're also determined to keep working with other countries to deliver solutions to these shared challenges. And that's exactly what we did today at the G20. These challenges include the unprecedented food security crisis around the world. Uh, we've got to do two things at once. Get food to the hungry now, but also help countries build up their agricultural productivity and resilience so that they're less vulnerable to future shocks. The United States is leading on both fronts. In addition to funding more than half of the World Food Program's entire budget, we've contributed $13.5 billion to fight hunger over the last year alone. And we've committed more than $11 billion over the next five years to boost countries' resilience and nutrition. African countries in particular have told us time and again that more than aid, what they want is help building the sustainable capacity to feed their own people. And we're teaming up to do just that. Now, the unprecedented levels of food insecurity have been driven primarily by, by climate, by COVID, and by conflicts. But the crisis has been worsened intentionally by President Putin, who's weaponized the hunger of people across the globe. Thanks in large part to UN Secretary General Guterres and Turkey, uh, the Black Sea Grain Initiative loosened Russia's stranglehold on Ukraine's ports, allowing more than 22 million metric tons of grain and other food, that's the equivalent of 8 billion loaves of bread, to leave Ukraine's ports for global markets. And that's lowered the price of food for people everywhere. Today, Russia is again slow walking the export of food from Ukraine. And with the Black Sea Initiative set to expire on March 18th, Russia has refused to commit to renewing it. 
The message that country said at today's meeting is clear. Extend the Black Sea Grant Initiative and strengthen it, and do that without delay. We also discussed ways to counter the proliferation and trafficking of illicit synthetic drugs like fentanyl and methamphetamine. In the United States alone, fentanyl killed more than 70,000 people uh, last year. It's the number one killer of Americans aged 18 to 49. No country can tackle this problem alone, disrupting supply chains of precursors, preventing the diversion of legal chemicals to illegal uses, dismantling the transnational criminal groups that foster corruption and profit off of others' suffering. These are challenges that demand a coordinated global effort. That's why it's important that, for the first time, G20 ministers called for a strong international cooperation to counter illicit synthetic drugs. And it's why I propose to my fellow ministers today at the G20 that we create a focused line of effort to bring together governments, international and regional organizations, private sectors, and others to tackle this problem. This is a law enforcement and security issue, but it's fundamentally a public health issue and an increasingly global one. Today we also discussed other challenges where people around the globe expect our countries to work together, like addressing the climate crisis, helping communities adapt to the inevitable changes it's causing, strengthening global health security so that we're better prepared to prevent, detect, and respond to future health emergencies. I also had the opportunity to speak on the margins of today's meetings uh, with uh, counterparts from Nigeria, South Africa, Brazil, Indonesia, the Netherlands, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, Argentina, and of course, India. And let me first commend the Indian Presidency and Foreign Minister Jaishankar for securing G20 consensus on a broad set of agreements reflected in the Chair's summary and outcome document. That's a first for G20 foreign ministers. Now, Minister Jaishankar and I speak so frequently that uh, we just pick up right where we left off, uh, working to elevate our strategic partnership in concrete ways, supporting India's very ambitious G20 agenda, advancing the U.S.-India initiative on critical and emerging technology, which President Biden and Prime Minister Modi launched at the G20 summit in Bali last May, engaging our shared commitment to human rights and democratic values. Uh, tomorrow, uh, Foreign Minister and I will join our counterparts from Japan and Australia for a meeting of the Quad, where key areas of focus will include protecting the free and unrestricted movement of goods and people across our seas, and boosting cooperation against uh, around humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, the importance of which has been brought once again into sharp relief by the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Our engagement with the Quad uh, and the G20 are just a few of the examples of how the United States is weaving together alliances and partnerships to enhance our capacity to deliver for our citizens. Uh, that's why I began this trip uh, in Central Asia, where I joined my counterparts for the C5 plus one ministerial. Uh, the more of these partnerships that we build, strengthen, and stitch together, the more we're able to effectively tackle uh, transnational challenges that affect our people, broaden opportunities for Americans, bolster our security, and advance our interests. And what we're seeing in Delhi and Astana and Tashkent and beyond is that countries want to partner with the United States because they see us showing up to solve shared problems, fostering inclusive economic growth, investing in our own competitiveness and standing up for the international rules of the road that benefit all countries, including the right of every country to choose its own path free from violence, coercion, and threats. 
Lastly, I spoke briefly with Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, on the margins of our G20 meeting today. I urged Russia to reverse its irresponsible decision and return to implementing the New START Treaty, which places verifiable limits on the nuclear arsenals of the United States and the Russian Federation. Mutual compliance is in the interest of both our countries. It's also what people around the world expect from us as nuclear powers. I told the Foreign Minister that no matter what else is happening in the world or in our relationship, the United States will always be ready to engage and act on strategic arms control, just as the United States and the Soviet Union did even at the height of the Cold War. I also raised the wrongful detention of Paul Whelan, as I have on many previous occasions. The United States has put forward a serious proposal. Moscow should accept it. We're determined to bring Paul and every other American citizen who's unjustly detained around the world home. We won't rest until we do. Finally, uh, I told the foreign minister uh, what I and so many others said last week at the United Nations and what so many G20 foreign ministers said today. End this war of aggression. Engage in meaningful diplomacy that can produce a just and durable peace. President Zelensky has put forward a 10-point plan for a just and durable peace. The United States stand ready to support Ukraine through diplomacy to end the war on this basis. President Putin, however, has demonstrated zero interest in engaging, saying there's nothing to even talk about unless and until Ukraine accepts, and I quote, the new territorial realities, while doubling down on his brutalization of Ukraine. Independent of what Russia does, we showed here in Delhi what we will do, deliver results on the problems most affecting our people's lives. Our hosts are committed to doing this over the course of their G20 presidency. For that and for their leadership and hospitality, I'd like to close by expressing my gratitude to India. And with that, happy to take some questions. We'll first go to Ian Marlowe with Bloomberg. Thank you, Secretary. Um, there's been rising concerns uh, in recent years about democratic backsliding and human rights issues in India, including the rights of religious minorities and recently with a move against the news, or, news organization, the BBC. Uh, did you raise U.S. concerns about these issues with your Indian counterpart today? And are you concerned at all that the situation might worsen heading into next year's federal election in India? Uh, and secondly, Reuters has reported that the U.S. is speaking with allies about potential sanctions for China if it sends lethal aid uh, to Russia uh, for use in Ukraine, as, as you've warned about in the past. Uh, can you comment at all on those discussions uh, and more broadly about your conversations with counterparts today relating to China's relationship with uh, Moscow? Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, first, uh, on India, uh, we're the world's two biggest democracies. Uh, we're committed to an enduring project, uh, both of us. Uh, in our case, as our founders put it, striving to form a more perfect union. Uh, that's part of our national ethos. Uh, it's a project for both of us, uh, India and the United States, in different but also uh, complementary ways. So we have to work together to show that our democracies can actually deliver uh, on our people's needs, and we have to continue to hold ourselves to our core values including respect for universal human rights, like freedom of religion and belief, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, which makes our democracy stronger. So we regularly engage with our Indian counterparts to encourage the Indian government to uphold its own commitments to protect human rights, just as we look to ourselves 
to do the same thing. And uh, in, in most conversations that I have with, um, with my counterpart, Foreign Minister Shankar, uh, this is uh, an issue that we discuss again as we did, uh, as we did today. Um, with regard to China and uh, its support for Russia's aggression in Ukraine, as we've said from the start, and as President Biden made very clear to President Xi, uh, going back to the very beginning of the Russian aggression, uh, were China to engage in material, lethal support for Russia's aggression, uh, or were to engage in the systematic evasion of sanctions uh, to help Russia, that would be a serious problem for, uh, for our countries. When I saw uh, senior foreign policy official Wang Yi uh, on the margins of the Munich uh, meetings just a week or so ago, I raised with him our very real concern that, based on information we have, China is considering supplying lethal military assistance to Russia. We've not seen it do that yet, but we've seen it considering that proposition. And what I shared with him again uh, was that this would be a serious problem for us in our relationship with China. And I made clear that there would be consequences for engaging in those actions. Uh, so I'm not going to detail uh, what they would be. But, of course, we have sanctions authorities uh, of various kinds. That would certainly be one of the things that we and others would look at. And I say others because this concern that China is considering providing lethal military assistance to, to Russia, this is a shared concern. And many other partners uh, have uh, raised this, and not just raised this with us, but, it's my understanding, have raised it directly with China, including here today in Delhi. To Maha Siddiqui with NDTV. Uh, Secretary Blinken, even though there has been an outcome statement and uh, the chair's summary, in two successive ministerial meetings, we've not seen consensus in the form of a joint communique. Do you see that as a setback in the run-up to the summit in September? And uh, were you perhaps able to communicate this? Uh, to your co Russian counterpart, uh, Sir Galavrov, when you met him on the sidelines today? So I think what we've seen here, as I, I mentioned, is actually a first, which is uh, an outcomes document uh, which um, reflects uh, shared agreements um, on a number of issues by all of the, uh, the foreign ministers represented here today. And in the particular case of um, Russia's war of uh, aggression, against uh, Ukraine, uh, you have um, virtually everyone in the G20 signing on to what had already been stated at, in, in Bali, uh, and the two holdouts, of course, were Russia uh, and China. So uh, I think we see broad consensus um, across the, uh, the G20 to um, work together, to act together, and to make commitments together. Uh, Prime Minister Modi said uh, today that we should not allow issues that we cannot resolve together to come in the way of those that we can. And I think what we saw today is a, a very good reflection of what the Prime Minister said. That is, uh, work and agreement on a whole series of lines of effort that the G20 will take to address the issues of greatest concern to people around the world. And that's been the focus of the United States. Uh, we want to make sure that even as we and dozens of countries around the world are standing up for the basic principles at the heart of the UN Charter that are uh, being trampled on by Russia and its aggression against Ukraine, 
were at the same time also working every single day to address the concerns of people around the world uh, on the issues that are really affecting their lives, whether it is food insecurity, uh, whether it's climate change, whether it's creating uh, economic opportunity, uh, building global health resilience, et cetera. All of those things uh, we've advanced on yet again here at the G20, and my full expectation is that when the leaders get together, uh, you'll see further very concrete outcomes uh, that reflect that consensus. Simon Lewis, Reuters. Okay, we're going to leave uh, the U.S. Secretary of State there, Anthony Blinken, speaking at the G20 foreign ministers meeting. Uh, a whole range of subjects discussed, commending India's leadership on this. The questions, though, I think from the audience, perhaps more important than some of the things that he said, and we'll get to that. He was questions on press freedom. He was accouched in his response on that. The two biggest democracies, it's one of the things they discussed from the U.S. part, but also India. And then the pointed questions on just what happened in that 10-minute discussion with his counterpart, uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. He said that they discussed the New START Treaty, and even at the height of the Cold War, they managed the two nations to negotiate on arms control. He pushed Russia to return. He pushed for the release of Paul Whelan. And he also said that, please, he reiterated what he was discussed at the United Nations, which is end the war. Natasha, the standout for you on this? Yeah, Julia, I think that this was really just a demonstration by Antony Blinken about how the U.S. is viewing all of these issues, uh, even while sitting right there in India, which, of course, is one of the countries that the U.S. has said is potentially helping Russia uh, by continuing to buy, of course, its oil and kind of reaping windfalls in that way and allowing it to continue its war in Ukraine. But this is an attempt by Blinken to shore up that alliance with India and try to get the Indians as well as the Russians, of course, uh, to stop uh, that war in Ukraine. And I think that the real the message, the big takeaway here was that the war in Ukraine was the overarching uh, theme of the G20, even though the U.S wants to focus on other issues, just encouraging the Russians, of course, to pull out. He started with the UN General Assembly voting for an immediate end to the war and not one G20 nation voted with Russia to refute that. Of course, to your point, India and China abstained. The geopolitical consequences and complications of all of this. Natasha, great to have you with us. Thank you for staying and uh, listening to that with us. Natasha Bertrand there from the Pentagon. And that's it for the show. More coverage of this and analysis on Connect the World with Becky Anderson, which is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.